Welcome to Specs Speak Science, the scientific podcast hosted by a rotating cast of chemists and industry experts. From highlighting the hidden chemistry in our everyday lives to discussing relevant industry topics, Specs Speak Science looks to deliver informative content to the scientific community. With that, please enjoy this installment of Specs Speak Science. Welcome to today's Spec Speak Science. We're going to be talking today about foodborne illnesses or foodborne pathogens. As human beings, we are exposed to potential pathogens all day long. Think about everything that you take in in your life that you're exposed to in your life. The foods you eat, the pharmaceuticals that you take, the water you drink, what you breathe, if you vape, what your environmental exposures are. So these become the pathways for which we must monitor our different pathogen levels. There are many agents for disease for foodborne and waterborne illnesses. In fact, there are over 250 specific agents and they can range from industrial pollutants to poor sanitation to poor hand washing to, to food handling. So you first have your physical contamination. This is your large debris, your dirt, your bugs. Then you have chemical contamination where maybe pesticides, heavy metals, or other materials seep into food and water. Then you have parasites. These are uh, worms and nematodes and other types of organisms that enter the food or the water and infect human beings. And then you have your microbiological contamination, your bacteria, your viruses, and your molds. Now, if we look at worldwide foodborne illnesses and deaths, and this is according to the World Health Organization, there are over 300 million foodborne illnesses a year. And that means that one out of 10 people in the world will experience some sort of foodborne illness. But it also means that 420,000 deaths a year occur worldwide due to foodborne illnesses. In the United States, according to the CDC, there are 48 million foodborne illnesses every year. That means one in every six people will experience some form of a foodborne illness. And that will result in possibly up to 3,000 deaths a year. Around the world, there are quite a few pathogens of concern when it comes to foodborne illness. Viruses like norovirus, bacterium like salmonella or campylobacter, uh, viruses like hepatitis A. And then there's aflatoxins, which are actually a chemical agent produced by fungus. So the highest death rate around the world, 89.4% were from aflatoxins, but there were no human cases here in the United States. And so there were no deaths, but uh, botulism, which is a bacterium, had the highest death rate in the U.S. of 17.3%. So these are definitely pa pathogens of concern when it comes to foodborne and waterborne illness. Now, one thing we don't always think about when we think about foodborne pathogens is the particle size or the pathogen size. If you're going to be doing lab testing, though, you should be aware of the relative sizes of all the different bacterium or viruses. 
So bacteria are definitely going to be much larger than viruses. And of course, microorganisms such as worms and, and other protozoan are going to be even larger than the bacterium in many cases. But size becomes important because if you're preparing a sample and you're grinding that sample down or you're homogenizing that sample, you are going to possibly exceed the um, the, the size of the particle is going to actually be smaller than the size of the bacteria or the, the organism that you're trying to study and therefore you might actually destroy it. So if we think of a very fine particle from a homogenizer like we have at specs, we're talking about maybe 5,000, 10,000 nanometers, maybe 1,000 nanometers, depending on how powdery you can get your sample. So if you have a, a sample of talcum powder, that's about 10,000 nanometers. A sample of clay is about 2,000. Most viruses are in the range of 100 nanometers. DNA width is 2 nanometers. So that's kind of the, the scope of scale. But if we look at something like a penicillin uh, spore, it's between 2,000 and 5,000 nanometers. If we look at salmonella, which is a, a common pathogen for, for foods, that's between 5,000 and 1,500 nanometers. That's a, a kind of a rod-shaped um, bacterium. Uh, botulism is, is 800 by 8,000 nanometers. So some of these are fairly large. And if you grind it down to a very fine particle size, that, let's say, 1,000, that level of clay and and that very fine powder, then there's a possibility you're going to basically kill off these organisms, which becomes a problem if you're going to be doing any sort of analysis where you have to plate the organisms or you have to grow a live organism. Another condition that you really need to worry about when you're doing pathogen testing in a laboratory is temperature. Every organism has some sort of deactivation temperature or a temperature where the organism is killed or is um, basically stopped from reproducing. So this can be very high, something like uh, an aflatoxin or a mycotoxin, you have to be over 150 degrees C, or it could be more on the lower side, like Shigella or hepatitis. At 55 or 60 degrees C, you start to get a die-off of those particular bacteria and viruses. So it also matters how long they're exposed to that particular temperature. For hepatitis at 60 degrees, it takes about five minutes, maybe more. For Shingella, it has to be at 55 degrees for about an hour before it will really start to be fully killed off. So this is a consideration if you are doing any grinding methods and you're actually heating up your sample, or if your sample does get hot, then you're possibly killing off the targets that you're trying to grow. But if you're using PCR, then this tends not to be a problem because PCR is not really affected whether the sample is uh, killed or not. So it ac actually samples DNA from both live cells or ce cells that are alive at processing and cells that have died. Modern scientists have a lot of choices when it comes to molecular biological analysis techniques. And some of them have been around for a very long time, like our cellular techniques, our cultures. Now, they're very sensitive and they're very reliable, but they tend to have low specificity. They're pretty time consuming. 
very laborious, kind of expensive. And if you don't have those living cells, so if you've processed your sample to such a small particle size or in a way that has killed off your cells because of temperature or friction or, or particle size, then you're going to have some false negative results because you're not going to have enough living cells to create your cultures. Then you have your immunological techniques. They pick up on the antigens, the ELISA methods. Again, very, very easy, high throughput, but again, some low specificity and low levels of detection problems. Uh, finally, you have your nucleic acid, the ones based on the RNA and the DNA, like your PCR and your qPCR. This, you need a very small amount of sample and you don't necessarily need live organisms to do your PCR. So there are some costs involved, enrichment, purification costs, but you are able to work with samples that do not have living cells. So you are able to get your results quantitatively from samples which have been processed that do not have longer have living cells. Let's take a closer look at two of these groups of pathogens. In particular, we're going to be looking at some bacteria and some mold or fungi. Now, bacteria are single-celled organisms, and they are prokaryotes, meaning they don't look like the eukaryote cells with um, the nucleus and, and the nuclear envelope. So they live in all extremes. They're the real ultimate survivors. Think of any habitat at the deepest ocean vents, on the top of the highest mountains, in snow, in heat climates, you will find bacteria. They, they just are the ultimate survivors. And they are both a pathogen and they're also needed for life. They're a symbiotic relationship in many organi uh, organisms with bacteria. So for human beings, we have some of these bacteria in our gut, in our biological systems, in our anatomical systems, and they are necessary for life. But then you also have forms of a bacteria when they enter a human being or into another organism that they can cause a disease. So things like salmonella or even E. coli, if it's different strains of or, or it's located in a place that it shouldn't be. Gram-negative bacteria, staphylococcus, enterobacter, these are all examples of bacterial pathogens. So the fungal kingdom is very interesting. When the first classification of organisms started hundreds of years ago, we first classified them as plants. So the early scientists saw that they grew, they didn't move, they kind of looked like plants, so they put them with plants. But as the science has moved forward over the centuries, we've recognized that they are not plants, but they're not quite animals either. They have characteristics. They're a blend of plants and animals. They have chitin in their cell walls like plants do but they're heterotrophs and they have digestive enzymes. So that's kind of animal-like. There's no photosynthesis. Again, very animal-like, no photosynthesis. And the only growth we see is through the, the growth of the organism itself or the release and the growth of spores. And that's very plant-like. And finally, another plant-like characteristic is a, being a decomposer. The fungal kingdom has nine phylum and that goes from the macro fungi, the, the big fungi that we think about, down to the little fungi. Looking at the fungal kingdom, as we said, there is very large fungus and there is very small fungus. 
on the large side, that's everything we know, everything that we've seen in our gardens, we see out in the woods, those are the macro fungi. Those are the, the groups that look like mushrooms or families of mushrooms that, that we typically associate with being a fungus. But then you have some of the smaller ones, the edging on the edge of the uh, micro fungi range. So those are things like your yeasts and your molds. And the molds are important because they can produce mycotoxins. And mycotoxins was one of those foodborne illnesses that had a very high death rate in other parts of the world. There's a large number of species and families of fungi that can produce mycotoxins. But the four bad players, so to speak, that we see over and over again are Aspergillus, Penicillin, Fusarium, and Claviceps. So these are the ones that have the most cause to create mycotoxins. In particular, we see a lot from Aspergillus and Penicillin because they produce some very deadly mycotoxins, the aflatoxins and the ochratoxins. Aflatoxins and ochratoxins are just one class of compounds that are produced by fungi. There are other mycotoxins. There are uh, different ergots and alkaloids that can be produced, fumosins. So there's a lot of different species of fungi that produce many different types of toxins. Aflatoxin and ochratoxin are particularly dangerous and they're found in some very common sources, things like cereals and grains, wine, beer, coffee, groundnuts. So they can be found in a very large variety of products. I've had to explain several times what's the difference between like the testing for aspergillus or the testing for mycotoxin. Aren't they kind of like the same thing? Well, I like to equate them to the actual organism is like the spider. So you can have the spider, but you don't necessarily have the poison. And the poison or the venom is the mycotoxin. So what are you looking for? Are you looking for the spider or are you looking for the venom? So we're gonna look at mycotoxin by the numbers. It's been estimated that about 25% of all food is infected with some form or some amount of mycotoxins. And one of the biggest mycotoxins is the aflatoxins. The World Health Organization considers it to be life-threatening. Anything above one ppm or one milligram per kilogram is considered to be life-threatening. Out of the aflatoxins, B1 is the most toxic, between 0.3 and 18 micrograms per kilogram of body weight a day. And food items should have less than 20 micrograms per kilogram in food, so less than 20 ppb. And then you have your ochratoxin, which is also toxic and has a limit by the FDA of five milligrams per kilogram of body weight a day. I'm gonna end our discussion today on foodborne illness and mycotoxins with a few famous cases of mycotoxin poisoning throughout history. The first we'll go with is the curse of the pharaohs. We've all heard about the curse of the pharaohs. King Tut's tomb was open, the curse of the pharaohs took over, and all these people, over time, they died. Well, there is a belief that the curse of the pharaohs could be related to mycotoxins, that mycotoxins were growing on the grain and the other offerings in the tombs, and they had been sealed in the tombs. They opened the tombs up, they were exposed to inhaling mycotoxins, things like aspergillus, and this was a cause for the curse of the pharaohs is that it could have been 
um, of poisoning from these different mycotoxins. Then we have the Salem witch trials. In the 1970s, somebody took a look at the Salem witch trials and they hypothesized that maybe the cause of the Salem witch trials, these hallucinations, were actually from ergot poisoning or poisoning of the grain, the rye, that was a staple of the diet at the time. So a ergot poisoning would cause hallucinations, muscle spasms, so all of the movements and the hallucinations could have been due to ergot poisoning. Then in Kenya, there was an aflatoxin poisoning case in 2004 where 125 people died and over 200 people were sickened by eating grain that was contaminated with aflatoxins. And then we also have the dog food recalls. As uh, late as last year, there was a massive recall on the different brands of dog food, different types of dog food, due to possible mycotoxin contamination. So they recalled the food because the grain in the food itself could have been contaminated with these mycotoxins. And then finally, if you've ever purchased a house or you've been uh, shopping for real estate, you've been told to watch out for black mold, watch out for black mold. That's because black mold tends to be aspergillus. And aspergillus is a type of mold that can produce aflatoxins and ochratoxins. So you can be sickened by the mycotoxins in the black mold that may be growing inside a home. Well, thank you for joining our podcast and I hope you tune in again to Spec Speak Science. Specs Speak Science is presented by Specs Companies. Specs CertiPrep and Specs Sample Prep provide scientists with certified reference materials and sample preparation equipment for a diverse range of analytical techniques. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the podcast and subscribing for future installments. Similar content, such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more, can be found at both specsertiprep.com and specsampleprep.com. Thank you for listening to Specs Speaks Science, and we look forward to bringing you future episodes. Thank you.